The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome one and all to Night Fright. The heavens have opened up here in Kingston and it is snowing like it should have been snowing on Christmas Eve, except this year we had a green Christmas. But um, I think the good Lord is making up for it tonight because uh, as I look outside the window, as I glance outside the window, which is just over here to my left, of the studio, oh man, I can't even see across the street. So we are in trouble here in Kingston, and this is life, folks, in Canada, at last. <laughs> We're back to the winter. This and hockey sticks, what can I tell you? Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of your choice. I'll tell you why. We're going to take you on one heck of a ride tonight. We're going to be looking at ghost stories tonight. We're going to be looking at Bigfoot sightings tonight, and most importantly... A 1986 UFO sighting that took place at Monroe's Point in Cape Breton Island. And Cape Breton Island, folks, is just off the east, western shore, my mistake, eastern shore, I was right the first time, eastern shore of Nova Scotia. We're going to be getting to that tonight with our guest, Jordan Bonaparte. And he's from Nova Scotia, folks. He's living in Halifax. He was brought up on the island of Cape Breton. But he's moved to Halifax, and he started a wonderful new podcast called The Nighttime Podcast, and it takes place at night. And what he does, an amazing thing with this, he takes all the lore from around the area, and he broadcasts these uh, wonderful historical moments that have taken place of the paranormal kind on his nighttime podcast, and that information for his contact information will be on the www.nightfrightshow.com website www.nightfrightshow.com website let me start off we're going to take you into it and then we're going to get right to Jordan Bonaparte's story and how he came to be part of this incredible 1986 Monroe's Point UFO sighting and this is from his grandfather this is how close he is to the story. And this is Edward Hashem's statement. We were traveling in North Cape Breton, traveling to a friend's wake. It was a little after 7 p.m., January 26, 1986. So let me tell you about that, folks. Uh, it's cold. 
obviously we're in the middle of the winter, we're coming up to that date right now, and it's dark. I was driving up a place called Monroe's Point. It's a high-level sort of a half-size mountain. And all of a sudden, I saw this thing coming through the sky. It hovered right above my car. I had a fairly new car, but it stalled my engine. I looked up, and it was a big disc, a round disc. It was really tremendous. It was maybe 20 to 30 feet in diameter. So this sucker's big, folks. It stood up over my car and lit up the entire area. Now, my wife, that's Jordan's grandmother, by the way, folks, was sitting next to me and got the fright of her life when this thing hovered above the car. And then it went away south. It lit up the St. Anne's Bay. This thing is big, folks. I could make out the houses across the bay in English town. I was going to awake, but I wouldn't dare say a word about it there. The Scots people in that area can be very superstitious. Nova Scotia, New Scotland, right? Just to uh, give you a little bit of context of the history of Canada as well. And would likely think I was, quote-unquote, off my rocker. Now, when I got back home in Sydney... I called the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the equivalent of the BBC, in um, in the UK. So this is huge, huge uh, national uh, radio and television broadcaster in Canada. And I called Search and Rescue. I was told by Search and Rescue, quote, whatever you think it is, that's what it is. Now, that's an odd thing, don't you think? We're going to get to that tonight, too, folks. Which I took to mean they don't want to admit there may be UFOs in the area. At the time in 1986, there was a lot of sightings of UFOs. I don't know if this is a fact or not, but someone had told me the UFO struck the Challenger. I don't know if that's a fact. I can only say there was hearsay. I was... Talking to a Nova Scotia science professor, he told me it was probably a fireball, a comet, but I've never seen a fireball stop. It's unreal to think one could stop. It had to be something powered to stop, motorized, maybe atomic. It had to be something because it hovered above the car. It was something that once in a lifetime you see lots of people in Canada, in the U.S., of course, have seen UFOs. But I don't know if they came that close. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience and a very dangerous experience. I then asked if he feels lucky for seeing it. That's Jordan's question. And he says, yes, Jordan Bonaparte, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us all the way from Halifax, buddy. My pleasure, Brent. I'm very happy to be here and happy to talk with you and your listeners. It's wonderful. Um we were talking about weather before, um, just before we came on air, and apparently you're going to get nailed with some snow tonight, too. Yeah, but we're expecting 15 to 25 centimeters of snow overnight, followed by freezing rain in the morning, which just makes the whole thing a mess. Oh, but, I, um, I love Canada. Yeah, well, uh, over the weekend, my wife and I bought a brand new snowblower, so uh, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to give it a test run tomorrow. Oh, you're gonna. Oh, I thought you were gonna send her out. Never mind. Okay, um, don't want to cause any hassles at, at your house. <laughs> no, that would not be worth it. I, I'd remove the snow by hand before I tried to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I gotta say, Brent, you're reading yeah. on my grandfather's statement. If we're if we're gonna make a movie about this thing, you got the role. 
Oh, you're very kind. Why, do I look like an old grandfather? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, I think the makeup team could maybe make it work, but your reading was fantastic. You're very kind, my friend, and thank you for getting in touch with me and sending me this. I was unaware of this sighting. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of people were, including myself and my family. This is something that my grandfather has only hinted at. He, he never was really willing to talk about it until now he's 92 years old, and I, I think the age has just loosened up his mouth a bit. Why did he keep it quiet all this time in family affairs? Was he afraid of being called, as he said, you know, a wackadoodle or something like that? Uh, close. My grandmother was, was the one who kept it quiet. My granddad would, he, for as long as I can remember, he'll just drop a hint about uh, just a little brief statement about his UFO sighting or just mentioning that it would happen. But it was always, he would always then follow it up with, your grandmother doesn't want me talking about it. Or if she was there, she would right away be like, they always fight. She'd be like, shut up about that UFO story, Eddie. And, and that was pretty much it. And it was, that went on for as long as I can remember. And everyone in my family would say something about, you know, your grandfather saw a UFO and your grandparents saw a UFO. But nobody knew the whole story. Everyone just knew a line or two that my granddad said, you know, five years ago or whatnot. But it must, it must have been very, very, under, I mean, you know, you're driving along the, the secluded road, mm -hmm. uh, you're in a brand new car, and as he said, he was on his way to a wake, and um, we all know, you know, a wake is, is a situation that it's not going to be the happiest of times, that's for sure. That's right. And all of a sudden, you've got this thing hovering over you. That's unexplainable, and it's mm -hmm. lighting up so much space that he can see right across the bay. How big is that bay, by the way? That is a good-sized bay, and, and where he is on Monroe's Point, where this all happened, it's, it's like he said, it's on a high, kind of half-sized mountain. So you overlook the bay, and you can see pretty much as far as the eye can see is water, followed by the land and the houses way off in the distance. And um, even with a pair of binoculars, you wouldn't barely be able to make out a house. But the way he described it is when this thing took off, it lit up the entire area, uh, he could see the houses and everything uh, across the bay. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the size, but it's, it would be the type of bay that you couldn't, um, if you fired a rifle, the bullet would not make it across the bay. So it's I guess a deep bay. Big fishing boats come out of there. I oh suppose. yeah, oh yeah, oh big time. Okay, so your poor grandmother sitting beside your grandfather. Mm -hmm. I mean, the two of them must have been petrified. And did they make some kind of pact that night not to ever discuss it, except yeah. amongst themselves? Yeah, basically, after whatever was above them took off, um, my grandmother was absolutely terrified. Her account of the experience is completely different than my grandfather's. When she describes it, it's not so much the physical description, it's just the terror she felt and how unnerving the whole thing was. After it took off, she pretty much told them, you know, we're not going to mention this at the wake. Uh, we're going to, you know, think about it and talk about it when we get home. And I think for the last 35 or 30 years since then, she's been telling him, we're not going to talk about this until the whole story broke with me. And that was just a coincidence that this in a perfect situation where it came out. You've got to tell us that story. How did that, how did that revelation <laughs> escape his mouth? Yeah. So he, I, I wouldn't say he's never been willing to talk about it. If you had him in the right, right position, he'd probably tell you the story. It just never really worked though. Cause she would always shut it down and they're, they're always together. Anyway, it's, um, this is, the whole thing came out about six months ago. I was at their home having supper. It was myself, my wife, and our three-year-old son. We're having supper with them, just like we always do. And uh, me and my grandmother were in the kitchen cleaning up the dishes, and my wife and my grandfather were sitting down in the living room. And he's often 
again, he's an older man. He's always just telling her stories and telling him about telling her about his life and whatnot. And I was again off in the kitchen doing my own thing. And we finished our our night, and and we're driving home now, myself and my wife, after a great night at my grandparents. Um, on the drive home, my my wife told me, you know, your grandfather told me an interesting story. I I didn't know he had seen a UFO, and. Right away, I was just shocked because she, I, I guess I just had never mentioned to her the story. And, uh, and I was like, what? He told you about that? What did he say? And she said, oh, I don't know. She didn't take it all in because she doesn't know the family history and she's not into this stuff as much as I am. And she told me a little, a little bit, but it was kind of vague and she didn't have the whole thing put together. But to me, this is so important because I've been hearing bits and pieces of it for 30 years now. And um, so anyway, I, I told her, like, I can't believe you didn't remember every detail. And we had planned to go back two nights later. So I'm thinking, you know, when I get there in two nights, I'm going to find a way to get him to tell me the story. Because, um, uh, again, this is the first time he's ever opened up about it with anyone. So we get there two nights later, same kind of thing. We're just having supper. And um, I said, you know, puppy, uh, I've been, I, was, I just made this up. I was like, I've been... Uh, reading about the, the Shag Harbor incident, which uh, I, you know all about. Yeah, I was we're going to get to that in a minute too, folks. Okay. So I, I said, I've been you know, reading about the Shag Harbor incident, and I listened to a, another podcast called Mysterious Topics. They did an episode on the Shag Harbor incident, and I said, you know, I, I know you have a great UFO story, Poppy, and I'd love to share your story with the guys from Mysterious Topics. And he said, you know, your grandmother was so terrified. He just started giving me just kind of vague things. And... Um, then I was like, can you tell me the story, Puppy? And he's like, you know, after supper, I'll tell you a story. So I was like, all right, here we go. And waiting for my grandmother to shut it down. For whatever reason, she didn't. And we ate supper. And sure enough, once the dishes are leaving the table, I should mention as well before we continue, my grandmother is the best cook in Nova Scotia, probably Canada. Um, so we, we just finished a fantastic meal. Remind things. me to give you my address, and we take delivery here, so... All right, I'll send you some meatballs and ravioli that'll oh, change buddy, that'll change your life. <laughs> so we fin as soon as we finished the meal, he said, uh, "I had my my digital camera with me because um, we were taking pictures of them with my son and whatnot." And he said, "Come on down to the room, I'll tell you the whole story." And I was almost floated to the room because I was so anxious to hear what he was going to tell me. And uh, we just he just pulled up a stool and sat down, and I turned on the camera and filmed it, and he just told me the whole thing. And in, in my podcast that I release, uh, it's the full recording of him telling the story that you read uh, pretty much the entirety of. It's pretty cool. And did he, fill, did he fill you in on not only what he thought it might be, but what how CBC reacted when, when he, he called them? Yeah, again, this is 30 years ago, yeah, um, and, he's a, and he's a 92-year-old man. He, he contacted CBC, and he told me he... They weren't initially that interested, but he did say he got a follow-up call a couple nights later from a journalist in uh, in BC. They asked him a few questions, but as far as he knew, they didn't do any story on it and had no interest in it. Strange. Did anybody else report a sighting that night? Not not out of Cape Breton, no. Um, I did quite a bit of research. When I originally, yeah. after telling the story, I started digging into whatever I could find. Initially, I, I was I knew I was going to do something with the story. I was considering a documentary or God knows what. Turns out I started a podcast and that was my first episode. Um, what I ended up doing to research it was I went to the Nova Scotia Public Archives, which is where I'm sure you have something similar where you are, but the government or the city or whoever kept 
the province, I guess, they keep all the old newspapers and death records and whatnot. And what I did, first of all, was I tried to corroborate his story. And in his story, he gave a specific date and told me he was on the way to awake. So what I did was um, I, I called him after, you know, maybe a week or two later and asked him for if he recalled the guy's name for the wake he was going to. And he told me the name. So I went to the death records and sure enough, it matched up. So then I pulled the newspaper from when the guy died to find out when the wake was. The date matched up. Everything was perfect. So I pulled all the newspapers maybe three days before till three days after the wake just to see if there was any odd news report in there that could potentially be related to what my grandmother and grandfather saw. And didn't find anything unusual. There is, though, one very unusual thing that happened two days later. Do you know what I'm going to get into? No. Okay. Go ahead. So my, my, the situation with, with my grandfather and grandmother in Monroe's Point, that was January 26th of 1986. The Challenger disaster was January 28th of 1986, two days later. My, my grandfather, he has, I wouldn't say, in a, uh, you mentioned in the statement, he, he, he brought up the Challenger disaster. It's not that he believes that they're connected, but I have read quite a bit about the Challenger crash and some uncertainty about what caused it. I'm not going to make any statement on that because I don't know enough about it to talk about it, but I do find it interesting that there's something that important historically within two days of what, what my grandfather saw, saw and experienced. That's fascinating correlation, maybe. Who knows what's, how it's connected, if at all, but you know, it's something to take a look at. It's good you're looking at the big picture. That's, mm -hmm. that's really good because most people just look and focus in on the micro instead of the macro, so it's good to zoom out. Yeah. Did, did your grandparents ever tell you what they thought it was? Did they dismiss right away that it could have been any kind of uh, Canadian aircraft, for example, or uh, maybe a flyover by, you know? Yeah, we, we talked about that, my grandfather and I, and um, the, the thought is where they were in Monroe's Point in the highlands of Cape Breton, yeah. why there would be any type of government activity or, or helicopters or whatnot, and on top of that, if, if you're, you know, you're on a, this isn't a lit highway, that you're on a, a car on a dark road on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, who in their right mind would shine a light down at the people driving and, and fly and, you know, and float your helicopter there? You're just asking to kill them. Um, so we can't believe that it was any type of manned vehicle, be it helicopter or any type of government, uh, government presence. And again, up in the highlands of Cape Breton, there's no basis or airports or anything. So there's no reason there would be one there. And in the middle of winter, all of our outdoor leisure activity, it's all summertime stuff here. Yeah. In the winter, the whole the whole island shuts down. So there's no reason anything like that would go on. The, the strangest thing you're going to see out that way is a snowplow. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, like the rural roads anywhere, folks, uh, either in the U.S. or Canada. We have lots of those types of roads here, too. Um how long did it hover over them? They were having a hard time telling me. Everything was just such a, a shock and a blur to them. Yeah. My grandfather seemed believed that it was about 15 seconds. My grandmother seemed to think it was more around one to two minutes. Okay. Any lost time by either of them? No, none that they that they recalled. Uh, however, the whole thing to, when I speak to my grandmother about it, yeah. she was she was so terrified and so shocked that. Her account of it all, although it matches my grandfather, she wasn't able to give the detail that, that he gave as to which direction it came in and which direction it left. In her mind, the world was about to end, and it, this was the start of you know World War III. Yeah. 
1986. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so she, her, her account of it is is a bit more unclear than his. Although um, it's interesting because his is so uh, so straight and physical. You know, this came, it did that, and the other thing. Her account is the opposite, where it's all her emotions and her feelings as it happened, as well as she talks about a lot about the emotions she felt afterwards and the embarrassment she felt. Where my grandmother, she is the most down-to-earth, grounded person you could ever meet in your life. And she, I don't even know if she could watch a fiction TV show, let alone make up, you know, something like this. And um, she's, she's absolutely been embarrassed and um, not wanting to talk about it at all. And the only reason she gave me the statement she gave me was because now that the story was out, because again, my, my first episode of my podcast, it was me and my grandfather telling his story. Once that was out, my whole family knew the story. So my grandmother only after that was willing to talk about it. And she described in detail um, how she felt afterwards. Let me read uh, Teresa's Hashem's statement. And, and it's just short, folks, but I'm going to read it to you because Jordan was kind enough to send it to me. So I don't think it's I think it's only fair for Teresa because she's uh, the best cook in the world as well. So I was there with him. I see it. I just didn't know what the heck it was. To me, it was just really frightening. We were going to awake. I don't know how to describe it. The thing just came out over the water and stopped above the car. I was terrified. Didn't know if there was a war coming. It was frightening. And then the car engine stopped just out of the blue. I know it sounds foolish, but I was terrified. I didn't know what it was, and being on a country road on a way to a wake, it was just very frightening. And then it just went, I can't even describe it. I told Eddie, her husband, grandfather, don't say anything about this at the wake. In fact, I always told him not to say anything about it. People would think we're nuts. That's from Teresha Hashem's statement about what happened that night. And she touched on something about the war. And, you know, 1986, uh, still in the middle of the Cold War. And um, there was even a movie that came out in 1986 that was so earth-shattering. It was a made-for-TV movie. I think NBC or ABC brought it out. You can find it on the Internet, folks, on YouTube, uh, called The Day After. And it takes uh, place in the United States about a nuclear attack and everybody thought it was imminent. Everybody really, really thought this thing was coming. So uh, I even had a friend um, that I had met up in Sudbury who had traveled farther north to the Yukon, and it was the first time he ever saw the uh, aurora borealis, the, uh, the lights at night, and he had never seen them before, didn't know what it was because he had originally come from Iran, and he thought, that's it, it's uh, the world's melting, and uh, the nuclear weapons have been flying back and forth, and this is the result of it we're seeing in the sky. So this fear was very real. So when something like this comes over you in the middle of that context, well, imagine yourself in the middle of a, a terrorist attack. There's a pretty good analogy, you know, and um, for this thing to fly away the way it does. Now, there are some parallels here, some frightening parallels with Shag Harbor that took place October 1967. Can we go into that a little bit? Do you feel versed enough to uh, delve into that story? I, I think I can hold my own, yeah. Okay, buddy, let's dive in. We've covered it before. We had um, 
Oh my goodness, I was going to say Don Dondarrion. Um, Here's a hint. Jeez. Oh, uh, Look at my. Oh, can I you get his name? Can you see my picture? Yes, that's Don Ledger. Thank you. And I just pulled my uh, my headphones out of my microphone. There we go. Don Ledger on it covered it. But I'd like to hear your take on it, Jordan. Can we dive into it yeah. and tell the folks? Yeah, sure. I, I don't know the story nearly as well as Don Ledger did. And as I tell it, I'm sure I'm going to get some of the facts wrong. And I'm probably going to get an email from him uh, tomorrow after he sees this. Um, Don is a friend of mine. He's been on my show in the past. And in yeah, fact, he helped, guy. he helped me uh, research uh, my grandparents' uh, sighting. And to be honest, Brent, the way I found out about your show was uh, before I had met Don, we had been emailing back and forth. And I, I just did a search in iTunes for Don Ledger, knowing he'd appeared on podcasts. And I found one of his appearances on your show, and I was so impressed. That's what led me to write to you several times uh, prior to this. Um, so Shag Harbor, the Shag Harbor incident, it's uh, we call it Canada's Roswell. It's Canada, as far as people know, it's Canada's only government-researched and investigated UFO crash, landing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Shag Harbor's on the other side of Nova Scotia than Cape Breton, where my grandparents' experience happened. Although it does have some parallels, Shag Harbor's very similar in size to um, to St. Anne's Bay, where my grandparents' sighting happened. Um, basically, the Shag Harbor incident, the Coles Notes version, uh, there's been reports of people all over the area of strange things happening in the sky near Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. Basically, people saw lights in the sky. It appeared to be lights going towards the water, entering the water. Here's where the government investigation comes in. His people start calling search and rescue and calling the powers that be, um, reporting what they believed at the time to be a plane crashing into the water. So, you know, the government has all these procedures and policies related to an aircraft crash. So they just turn on, you know, the emergency siren and police and, you know, everybody's on their way out there to see what's going on. And this, this isn't, you know, one person reporting it. It's a whole collection of unrelated people saw the same thing. The lights go into the water. People also, not just one person, many people, saw the lights under the water move around a bit, sit there for quite a long time. I don't know how long. And then basically some people, again, unrelated to everybody else, saw the lights leave the water and fly away. What happened? use your imagination but there's a whole lot of people in canada who believe uh, a ufo for whatever reason and by ufo i mean something from god knows where went in the water stayed there for a while and took off pretty scary situation when you think of it because again we're in the 60s the cold war and uh, once you put that call into uh, the military, you know, they have to respond right away. Obviously, they think it might be a downed aircraft, but they can't take any chances, especially, you know, in that era. So now all of a sudden you've got NATO alerted and you've got all these boats heading there. And a lot of the fishermen folks in, in uh, Shag Harbor got into their boats, this, the Canadian way, <laughs> to go out and see if they could help with a rescue if it was a downed airplane. And they came across this... I, the only way I can describe it is perhaps the way Don described it, kind of an unearthly foam that was sitting on top of the water where the uh, aircraft or the UFO had submerged. And uh, there was reports that people had found bodies later on and um, all kinds of stuff floating around that, uh, that story. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on in Nova mm -hmm. Scotia. I was going to say uh, Don Ledger, he, he wrote actually uh, two books that uh, tackle the Shag Harbor incident. The first one 
Maritime UFO Files. This is a collection of uh, of documented UFO encounters across the Maritimes, or you know, my part of Canada. I bought this book initially when I was researching my grandparents' sighting, uh, looking for any type of parallels because this covers a yeah. lot of a lot of sightings and encounters in, in a similar time. Couldn't find anything quite like my grandparents, but I'm hoping if he ever reprints it, he's going to include their story because uh, that would make my grandfather's day. He also wrote a book um, co-authored with uh, Chris Stiles called Dark Object, and that only tackles the Shag Harbor incident. And that would tell you, if you're interested in that, that's going to tell you everything you need to know about it, and then some. And then some. Yeah, I highly recommend that book. And uh, Jordan also, folks, don't forget, he's got his podcast. When is your podcast on? Is it regular scheduled uh, podcast? or? Yeah, as regular as I can make it. It's uh, the, I call With it the nighttime. at home, yes, I know. Yeah, the, the reason it's called the nighttime podcast is because I can only work at it during the nighttime because that's when my son's asleep. Uh, I generally try to release something every Saturday. In fact, I, I did one last Saturday, which uh, went over fantastic. I had uh, two interviews by CBC, and I was on some of the local news, and it's been fantastic. And I have another one coming out this Saturday. So if I, if if I have the time, if my son sleeps well, I'll put one out every Saturday. Congratulations, Jordan. Work well Thank done. You. And well Thank needed, you. too, because this is part of Canadian history. Uh, folklore, a lot of people look over. But this is part of our history. It's part of our oral traditions. It's part of our culture as well. And I think these stories are, you know, the fact that you're amassing them, I think there's probably going to be a book in your future as well, without question. Well, that's my, my long-term goal. Uh, the way I see my podcast, in a way, is as a kid, I was always into those books where it's just a collection of ghost stories and whatnot. Being maybe analytical to a fault, those books always bothered me because it didn't have the hard facts like dates, last names, and places. It was all very vague. I kind of see my show as a, the version of that book that I would want, where I'm trying to kind of tell the story but I'm also applying my analytical side or I'm doing a bit of an investigation into it. And I think that's what my show does that a lot of other shows don't do is I'm going in and pulling the old newspapers, the death records, and in, uh, trying to only do firsthand interviews. So I'm getting the, the story right from the horse's mouth, but also comes with that is it, it's a lot of work. No kidding. <laughs> and, and I must say, uh, I must say, Brent, I'm very impressed by how much you managed to put out. You, uh, you're, you put out more episodes and, and more tweets and interesting videos than I can even keep up with. But following you on Twitter, I don't think I need cable anymore. <laughs> You're so kind. And you'll send me your address, too, so I can send you off that check we discussed. I, I pay you. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I pay you 10 bucks a kind, a kind word, folks. But yeah. I, in all honesty, I don't have a three-year-old running around. So mm -hmm. it makes a big difference. You know, I know what it's like to raise a couple of kids and... Uh, you know, so kudos to you, kudos and your wife to support you for that. That's pretty special. Yeah, well, I think she likes the break from me. Uh, and my son, he'll be co-hosting with me in about thirteen years. So right on. But I like the way you think. I like the way you think. I just, had, <laughs> I had my two nephews. Um, uh, I helped raise them, and I just had my nephew on. He's uh, twenty-nine. He's in aerospace at uh, at Stanford, and it was such a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, we had um, we were talking about the space shuttle before. We had Story Musgrave on, who's a very famous uh, astronaut, actually. And uh, it was so nice to have them on the show, and they conversed and stuff. So you're going to have wonderful, wonderful things to look forward to having your oh, son yeah. on the show. It's going to every day is an adventure. What are some of the things that come into you? What are some of the stories that pass by your desk? Uh, you know, it's 
use your imagination. Pretty much when, when I first launched my podcast, CBC had covered it because I, I had been in the news locally here just before I launched my podcast for something unrelated. Basically, I found on the side of the road a, um, a journal that somebody had written, but the journal was written. I don't know if I told you this story. It was a, just a handwritten journal. Um, and I, I'm walking home from work and I pick up the journal and I'm flipping through it. And it's referencing just, it's kind of written in a weird style, first of all. It was kind of almost old English, but it's referencing King George and Princess Elizabeth and all this stuff. And as I'm reading it, and then it gets to a point where it, it describes King George visiting, or sorry, Princess Elizabeth visiting Nova Scotia, where I live. So I Googled it to see, you know, what was this? Was this in the 70s? And sure enough, it was in 1945. So as far as how the journal got on the side of the road and it was in pristine condition, I, um, I went uh, on Reddit, I'm active on Reddit, and I put up a post saying, you know, with photos, look what I found. And sure enough, within an hour, I got an email from the CBC reporter looking to do a story on the book and help me. Uh, what I was doing when I went on Reddit was I was showing people the photo, but also saying, you know, I'm going to try to find this girl, uh, the girl who wrote it. And CBC had contacted me to, to do the story and help me try to track down the person who wrote it. And sure enough, um, two days later, I managed to find her. She's still alive, living nearby, and I went and reunited her with the journal. Um, and as far as how the journal got on the side of the road, she has no idea. She said uh, she said that what it was was not a personal journal. It was a uh, when she was in grade eight, because on the inside cover it said grade eight, Eva Smith. And what she had said was um, in grade eight, it's what's called a composition book, and it was a part of English class where they would have to write short stories or whatnot. So it was half fiction, half true. Uh, and, I, and when I asked her, you know, do you have any idea how this got on the side of the road in pristine condition? She said, as far as I knew, we would have thrown that away at the end of the school year. She said, I never had it. I, not that she had moved and thrown stuff away. It was completely random. Uh, she went to school where the book was written. It was about a two-hour drive from where, where I found the book. And she lived about a 45-minute drive from where I found the book. I found that on the side of a pretty busy highway. So that's not if it's an absolute mystery. Um, so anyway, that's what got me on CBC's radar. Um, and then when I put together my grandfather's story and released that, they they agreed to interview me and talk about it and you know tell the story. And during that interview, I said, if anybody has a great story to tell, I'd love to hear from you. Here's the email address, which is nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. And the floodgates just opened. I've been getting emails from you know, Bigfoot, which is the most recent podcast I released, ghosts, UFOs, you know, unexplained, anything you can imagine. And I also get emails that are just plain strange. And I think my uh, my life's work is probably going to be someday when I publish the emails, I guess, because uh, anytime the press around here has spoken to me, I've given out my email address and I, I just get, I get some great stuff. I also get some very weird stuff. It's been awesome. Oh. What's what's the type of story that really wanks your crank, that really gets you going? You know, I like something that I can dig into and try to investigate. So I like to have a firsthand account of something where they have a date yeah. and a place and, may, and hopefully one or two other witnesses to corroborate a story. That way I can talk to a few people, you know, and look into things. Because, again, I, I have such a conflicted personality because I'm so into mystery and the paranormal and the unexplained. But also, due to my profession, I do a lot of investigation and I'm analytical, unlike anyone you've ever met. So I need a bit of both. So I like the story that has both of it. I like anything that's scary. I like, and it, but I also want it to not just be this vague, 
you know, um, I knew this guy named Chris and he saw uh, a white lady on the water by the lighthouse. You know, that's just to me. I'm just like, whatever. I've seen that movie. <laughs> I, I, I want to I want to have a bit more to it. And mm-hmm. the stories that I've been taking on, like my grandfather's, it's firsthand information where I can dig into it a bit more, a bit more. Jordan Bonaparte's our uh, our guest tonight, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on his connections, and uh, that'll take you right to a place where you can listen to his podcast. And uh, I encourage you all, of course, to take part of that because it's got some creepy stories as well as some great, great research, as you've just heard. He thoroughly researches his stuff, and he's a great guy, so it's well worth it. And... Um, CBC's all over him, which is fantastic. It's nice to see somebody finally getting some Canadian support from CBC. Mm-hmm. It's, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think one of the reasons they, they enjoyed is the focus of my show, unlike yours, where you're tackling the topics from all over the world, I'm focusing specific on Atlantic Canada. Um, so all of mine are, are things very close to home. And the reason I did that is just, of course, I live and work here. But also I have access to the people here and I can drive to someone's house or I can drive to a site. So I'm, I'm sticking with things in my neck of the woods. Jordan, what do you do for a living? You just said I, you were an investigator. Yeah, I work in the insurance uh, the insurance business with home and auto insurance. And um, so I, I, I do a, a little bit of anything you can imagine related to that business. Is there a lot of um, pulling the wool over your eyes? I would I would suspect some people are trying to abuse the system. Yeah, it, there could be, yeah, but uh, but my job is to keep it fair for everybody. Uh, but really, my job in a lot of ways is to be able to see the bigger picture and make everything make sense. And uh, so it's um, I was a born investigator. I think my, my calling is probably to be a private investigator because if, if something, if, if I look at something and there's something about it that's out of, out of sync or out of line or doesn't make sense, um, it stands out to me like a sore thumb. I hear you, Jordan. I think you use utilize that skill set perfectly in in all your uh, podcasts, especially going to the archives and doing uh, research like that. I have to give you a pat on the back. Um, let's go to some ghosts. I want to get to Bigfoot because that's a big mm-hmm. story. Yeah, but I want to hang on to that for a second. I want to get to some ghost stories that have come across your desk as well. Can you tell tell us maybe one or two of the ones that stand out? Yeah, I uh, I did a story recently um, about two ghost paranormal type stories. And I thought this was interesting is I, I put a, a call out to my listeners to share with me any type of paranormal, specifically ghost stories. And um, my thought was what I was going to be getting back were, you know, scary horror, the kind of stuff that, you know, kept me up at night as a kid. Oddly enough, almost every email I got was a positive story. And uh, so what I did was I picked two of the stories that, um, had the most uh, intrigue, in my opinion, and uh, I did a, I did a release for it was the, these two uh, ladies telling a third ghost stories, which both were positive. The first was a um, a children's she she now is an author. Her name is uh, Alessandra Nadivari. She's a children's author in Nova Scotia, and um, she had uh, moved here originally from out of the country, and uh, she was renting an apartment, and she had just a lot of odd things going on in her apartment. She was basically um, you know, TVs turning themselves on and playing for whatever reason. The t- her, I think it was the second night she she lived there in this apartment. Uh, herself and her husband were going to bed, and they just heard piano music blaring. And they um, they were initially they were just like, you know, what's with that piano? And then they're like, wait a second, we live alone in a house, not in an apartment building. What is going on? And so the husband went down, 
turn uh, disconnected or turned off the TV. The TV, for whatever reason, turned on. So that was odd. They would have other things like they were noticing lights turning themselves on and off. And, you know, as I'm talking to them, I'm thinking maybe just electrical problems. Because, again, this is where my mind goes. It's like, was there an electric problem in the building? Did you call an electrician? But also they had a natural gas stove in they noticed the stove turning itself on, not lighting. They could just hear the gas whirring. Oh. And yeah, so that was um, that side of it was a little scary. What they ended up doing was she told me they removed the um, the knobs you turned. She pulled them off, and she did that, and it never turned itself back on. Um, she also found um, it, it was just a lots of odd things in there, and it seemed to be all the attention was directed towards her. The only negative thing of the whole thing was that what I just mentioned about the gas. Anyway, what she ended up doing was um, they just she the way she described it to me was almost a standoff. She went in her living room and just said, you know, whoever's in here, whatever you want from me, we're just here to live here in peace. You know, you can live here too. Just leave us alone. And she said she immediately felt the mood in the house change, and she lived at peace with it with whatever was in there. She uh, the ghost, the spirit. She lived there for a few more months until her work called her out of the province, so she had to leave the apartment. And she went out of the out of the province for a few months for work. When she came back to the province, she contacted the landlord, but the apartment was um, was rented out at, to someone else, but it was going to be available in two months. So she agreed, you know, I'm going to rent it again. And uh, when they moved back in, she thought she would reconnect with, with the ghost or whatever was there. But she said the mood in the house, it was completely flat. Whatever was there was gone. But what she ended up doing is she writes a, a series of children's books. And she had t- taken everything she knew about the ghost and created a character within her book series that where the ghost becomes a you know a part of the series. So that story I, I really liked because of the the outcome. And she had she had given me a copy of the book and and she she tells such a great story. She told it much better than I did. Um, so so that was one that I really liked. And I also had a separate story in that where a, a friend of mine named Julie Francis um, she told me a story about she had a she's um probably about 30 years old, I would guess. If she's younger than that, she's probably going to slap me. Uh, she um, had told me a story where her younger brother had been had been very sick and, and suddenly passed away. So a, a very sad story about, about her younger brother passing away um, much quicker than, than the family expected. It was my understanding. The night she, he passed away, the, the family had been in the hospital with him leading up to it, and she went home because she can't stay there all night. And she, in the middle of the night, her her bedroom door just opened. She heard, you know, the click, and the door opens, and the light from the hallway illuminates her room. And she got out of bed and thought, you know, who's there? Nobody answered. That's weird. So she shut the door over, heard the click, and went back to bed. Shortly after, the door opened itself up again, unlatched itself and opened. And she left the door open and just went to sleep, not thinking anything of it until the next morning when her father or her parents came in the room and hugged her and basically said, you know, uh, your brother's gone or our son's gone. And she, she believes that he came and saw her on that night. And she described several other encounters or experiences since then where she believes she's been visited by her brother's spirit, specifically at vulnerable moments. Can you tell us one of those? Um, yeah, one was um, she was her her grand. I believe I may get this wrong. Uh, I think it was her her grandmother was passing. Um, so this is another another sad story, and she was bawling and crying, you know, as you would, and she felt something from behind her wrap 
its arms around her and she immediately just you know felt better and she believed it to be her her brother and her grandmother's spirit so she she is a i'm not sure her religious beliefs but she very much still feels connected to her brother as well since the passing of her grandmother her grandmother uh, and I, I felt her story um, when she told it to me although it wasn't something i could investigate and research her telling of it was fantastic and i thought it was unique to hear this encounter and this experience with the paranormal have such a profound almost religious effect on her where she describes any vulnerable time that she has in her life she knows and she believes that they're standing there right right there with her and i think that's probably as important or as, or as powerful as any religious belief anyone could have jordan have you had personal experiences along those lines because i'm guess i'm what i'm doing in a roundabout way is asking you why did you choose the paranormal to start a podcast about you know i've I'll, I'll just answer the question that way uh, first of all is i've been fascinated with this stuff for as long as i can remember when i was i think i had an older brother who was into horror movies and uh i've been since too early of an age like i, I think i was probably six years old watching friday the 13th i've been obsessed with anything horror ghosts ufos the whole nine and i just i never grew out of it uh, i'm now 34 years old and i still watch mostly science fiction and horror i still read science fiction and horror it's still what i'm into yeah you're guilty as well um as far as ever having an experience with a ghost or a spirit i have never had an experience uh i would love to and it's not due to lack of trying i've said bloody mary into the mirror i've looked under my bed i've been in my basement with a flashlight and the lights out uh, I lived in the where I live in Cape Breton. It's dense woods in my backyard, and my brother and I explored every inch of it. And we haven't seen Bigfoot, we haven't seen a ghost, but that doesn't change my belief that there's much more to the world than we than we know. I agree um, completely. Right, and I use it um, to to make the world feel more interesting. I think right now in this modern day, uh, there's quite a bit in a, quite a bit of monotony. Everything is fake and made of plastic and boring. And I can't help but believe that there's much more interesting things if you're just brave enough to, to look and you have the imagination and willingness to, you know, to go out on a limb and climb down a rabbit hole. And that's what I do every day is, you know, I, I'm not going to get get upset in traffic. I'm just going to think about how incredible the world is and how much mystery there is there. That's a great attitude. And you're right. If we open our minds up to the possibilities, they're unlimited. Mm -hmm. They really are. And that's what I try to do, and you do, with your podcast as well. Mm. Let's go back to Bigfoot now. You mm. had touched on Bigfoot several times during the show, and also in the email you sent me. Mm. Can you take us into that? Yeah, and I think this is a great story. And I'll be honest, um, like probably a lot of your listeners, when I hear anything about Bigfoot, my first instinct is to roll my eyes. There's, there's so much... Um, bad information and you know and, and hoaxes and all that sort of thing basically how it all starts is i get in uh, just a random email uh, in response to one of my calls for stories and uh it's a, one of my listeners tells me i you know i have i believe i saw a bigfoot and he just gave me a you know a brief summary and originally i'm like i don't know if i want to cover that uh, and i was like why don't you tell me a bit more and he sent me then you know a pretty sizable email telling me the whole story and when i read that i was just like you know i think this guy has an interesting story and the way he wrote it and everything i'm like you know he i can tell he believes it and he was very passionate he also his story had several other witnesses and he had the dates and all the stuff that i want so i wrote him back and said you know let's let's meet up on skype and we'll chat and um 
So uh, we met up on Skype. I recorded the whole thing. His name's Miles McKenzie. He's from, he lives currently in Moncton, New Brunswick. He's originally from Pictou County, Nova Scotia. He's in Moncton. He started his own, he's a brewmaster. He makes beer. Um, so I, uh, and I hope he sends me some. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, here's, just, here's saying. A, just saying, I'll see what I can do. Um, so here's how it all happens. It's 2003 is, is his experience. And it's basically, he's a young man, 2003. He's on the track and field team for Picto Academy. It's him and four other members of the track and field team, as well as the coach of the track and field team, coincidentally, his father. Stephen McKenzie, who's on my show as well. He's who I chose as the backup witness. Um, basically, his father, Stephen, takes Miles and four other members of the track and field team to this area called Green Hill Provincial Park, which is a dense, heavily wooded park in Pictou County. They're doing what's called a hill sprint. And now, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, if ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs don't scare you, hill sprints will. It's basically just running up and down a thick, heavily wooded hill. And, uh, I don't know why anyone in the right mind would want to do that, but that's what these people were doing. Um, so they're doing hill sprints for, you know, exercise for their track and field thing. And the way Miles described this hill in this area is thick, 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 steep, steep, steep. And he basically said as they're running down the hill, they're barely on their feet. They're holding onto the, the trees and the branches and just flying down the hill. The four of them running. So they get, you know, about as far down as they're going to go. And the guy at the very front of the line going down, he stopped and he's like, whoa, did you guys hear that? And Miles stopped and the other four, uh, the other three of them stopped. And Miles said it was absolute dead silence, such that it was eerie. There was no birds, no nothing. It was just dead silence. Mm. And then the guy at the front who is maybe 20 feet ahead, he's like, I hear a baby crying. And they all listened and they heard what sounded like a very quiet baby crying which anyone in, in this part of the world, they would probably think a bunny rabbit, because a, a rabbit, as part of its mating calls, kind of sounds like a baby crying. And they said, you know, as soon as they heard what sounded like a baby crying in the woods, they heard a roar unlike anything they've ever heard. Miles said it almost knocked him off his feet. It sounded like a bass drum at a concert, just like, you know, pounded his chest. And he said, yeah, just boom, this roar. And he said it, it didn't sound like a bear. It didn't sound like a cougar or a coyote, which are common animals we have here. He said it sounded human, but it wasn't human because it was too loud and powerful for any human to do it without a professional soundstage blasting their voice. And as, as soon as this roar rips off, they, as fast as a bolt of lightning, just start flying up the hill. So they're running, and they can hear behind them sticks and branches and twigs cracking. They know something's after them. And Miles said it was, you know, fight or flight kicked in, and there was no option for fighting. With this thing got near them, it was going to tear them apart. And as they're running, they're not even talking. They're just in panic mode trying to get back up the hill, again, pulling themselves up on the sticks. And the guy at the very back of the line fell down, just tripped. And Miles said, and now Miles, he doesn't sound like a, uh, a soft guy. Again, he's running up and down a hill in the woods. He was in the military. He said um, they all looked at each other, the remaining guys, as he fell and as they're running. And the only thing they, they managed to say is he fell, he's dead. And they kept running. And he opened up about that. I think at this point, you see, I, I relate to that because I was all, you know, the chubby kid. I was always at the back of the line. <laughs> you, uh, you're lucky you weren't with them that day, Brent, because you would have uh, you would have been a meal. Uh, so they, they keep going. 
leaving their friend for dead. They get to the top of the hill to see the father, who the coach, who's actually now on the way down the hill. The guy who fell, he got up and he survived. He made it up. And the father was on the way down because the father, again, he was at the top of the hill. He heard the same thing, and I interviewed him on my podcast. His account of it was it sounded like a human screeching in pain, and he thought for sure one of them fell, and he thought they must have, must have broke a leg because it was a panicked shrieking. And the father had told me he heard it several times, so as it was going for them, if it was, it must have been making the sound several times. They don't remember that, but Miles told me they were in a pure panic, mm. and he doesn't remember anything other than just trying to get up there alive. So they got up, up the top, and the father right away sensed something was up. They were panicked, white as ghosts, you know, the whole nine. And the father's just like, you know, like, everyone calm down. Let's just, you know, what's going on? Is everybody okay? And they assured the dad they were okay, and they got in their van and, and drove home, had been talking about it ever since. Now, what led them to believe it was a, a Sasquatch or Bigfoot, although they never laid eyes on anything, they did a lot of research because it, it was such an important moment for them. They listen to sounds of, you know, of bears. Uh, they listen to sounds of bears who are sick and dying that make weirder sounds. They listen to different types of coyotes. Here in Cape Breton and Nova Scotia, we have what's called coy wolves, which are sometime in the past coyotes and wolves have uh, intermixed and bred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we get very large coyotes, and they make all sorts of weird sounds, none of which sound anything human. So they listen to, you know, any animal they could imagine, and they haven't found anything that sounded anything like it. Miles's father had told me the same thing. Stephen, he's a hunter and he's heard it all. And he said, it's unlike anything I've ever heard. But what they did hear, uh, they found a website, I believe, out of BC that was um, investigating Bigfoot and Sasquatch. And they were looking at it. And the whoever ran the site had recorded what they believed to be a Sasquatch in the woods of BC. And he said, when Miles told me, when he played that clip right away, he's like, you know, that's it. Whatever that clip is, that's what we heard. And they, they believe it to be a Sasquatch, and I'm going to give them a benefit of, at this point of the story anyway, I'm giving them a benefit of a doubt. I believe wholeheartedly they saw something or heard something unusual, mm -hmm. probably an animal that's not able to be identified. But what comes next in the story is what really made me, you know, take a step back. And so basically, I interviewed them. I interviewed the Miles, the, the, the son, interviewed the father had everything about put together, and then in a, doing a bit more research, what ended up turning up, in fact, it was a reporter from CBC who helped me put this all together, there was a, um, a now-defunct newspaper from the area called the Thorburn Post. So Thorburn is a small community in Picto um, near where the sighting happened, and it, it was a, a newspaper from August of 1913, and it described um, an encounter that a farmer in the area had with some unexplained animal. Basically, the farmer reported to the whoever the authorities are in 1913 that something is messing with their livestock. Basically, it was raiding the chicken coop and killing the chickens. It was it ran off with a cow. It did all sorts of hijinks. They she she reported it to the powers that be who came to investigate, and they did find tracks leading to and from the farm that were roughly 15 inches long and that were embedded pretty deep into the ground, which is going to apply a very large, very heavy animal. So I'm reading that, and I'm like, whoa, that's odd. You know, it's, it's in the same kind of area. Now, here's where it gets even weirder, is I, I, I'm not from this area, so I showed Miles, 
the the newspaper article and right away he's like he he knew the street it's called marsh road and he's like whoa like that's right where we were and he showed me on google maps he didn't know anything about this this story the marsh road where this story from 1913 took place is less than 20 kilometers from the green hill provincial park he was at and this is in the middle of nowhere you know not a busy area so 20 kilometers in pictou county is very very close so then you know at this miles, point folks for the folks south of the border <laughs> yeah um so anyway we're just like wow that's you know that's incredible that there's two sightings that close together but here's where it gets even weirder now i can't corroborate this because the reporter who wrote this article is long since dead i'm sure the the newspaper i can barely even find any mention of it existing um, because it's so long ago and from such a small area, their, their records haven't been fantastic. But what the reporter who wrote the article indicates is that he's done a research into the history in the town looking for, you know, similar things in, in that area. And he found um, past accounts of something doing something similar to this and sounding very similar to this roughly every 15 years in the historical record. Wow. And the, yes, and the, the author, the journalist who wrote that, he presents the theory that he believes whatever it is is coming out every 50 years from wherever it goes. And I I should mention that as well as when in the initial news report, uh, another person, like it was the one girl who reported it, who had the uh, the firm. 30 seconds, Jordan. Okay. Somebody else uh, had reported seeing something flee from where they were into the woods, uh, into a swamp. Anyway, uh, he presents the theory that every 50 years this thing's coming out. When we did the math, Miles' account is 100 years after that article was written, matching the timeline within 20, 20 kilometers of where it was. So if that doesn't make you wonder, I don't know what will. Goosebump factor. And just tell them not to be embarrassed because I had Jane Goodall on the show. She believes in Bigfoot. We're going to have to go. Jordan, thank you so much. www.nightfrightshow.com. Stay in touch, buddy. I'm going to have you back on in the summertime. We'll talk some more. How's that? Fantastic. It's an absolute pleasure, Brent. Me too. Take care. All the best to your family. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.